You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. I'm so excited to be coming from you live from the Starlight Starbright Trailer Park. Great, great setup here tonight. Uh, it's, it's so fun to be here. We've got something amazing to talk about, and I have a fantastic guy to help me with this episode. And I, I know you missed him. I've missed him. The one, the only, Norman C. Lau. Greetings, podcaster. You have been recruited by Trek FM to defend the airwaves against the Klingon Empire. Or something like that. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Matthew, thanks for having me back on the 602. I love coming back. Always, always. Love the show. And you know me. We got a topic that we are going to talk about that is about as close and as near and dear to my heart as anything else. It's true. It's true. In fact, I came up with the topic idea because of you. Ooh. And I knew, okay, we've got to have Norm on the show to talk about the topic. Before we jump into that, just remember, everybody, that uh, we are part of the Trek FM network here. We're so proud to be with Trek FM here at the 602 Club. Of course, you can find all of the shows on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. And, and guess what? While you're at iTunes, give us a star rating and review. And you want to know why you should do that? One, because it helps out the show, and you're nice people who listen to this show. But two, guess what, Norm? Guess mm. what they can win if they give us a star rating review by July 19th? I am waiting with bated breath. I am not sure. They can win Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition digital copy. What? For real? For real. That is so good, and it's so worth it. So do yourself a favor, people. Get behind that contest because that is one heck of a director's cut for sure. Yes. Yes, it is. And I just want to say quick thanks because I really uh, this this is totally deserved. This this gentleman wrote a fantastic review for the 602 Club five star review. And I really want to make sure that his name gets mentioned on the show. He's definitely, of course, in the contest uh, because he's gotten his review in. But Will Mize, uh, really appreciate his review. Um, maybe one of the most thoughtful, sweet reviews that we have gotten for the show. And, and uh, so complimentary. And it, it just warmed my heart. And so I really want to say thank you to him uh, because you made my day. And I really appreciate that. So definitely he is in the running with everybody else there who's given us reviews on the uh, 602 Club. So thank you so much. So go do that. Of course, you can contact us at trek.fm slash contact. You can just choose the show, choose the 602 Club. That'll send an email to me. And you can. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what we're going to talk about tonight. Voicemails. Love getting voicemails. Speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. Twitter at Trek.fm, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek.fm, and of course, the Babel Conference, which is the listeners-only discussion group. If you go to Facebook, go to the search field, type Babel into the search field there, or if you're on our website at Trek.fm, click discussion on any of the mini bars you see there, and it'll bring you straight there. So, Norm, so yes, this subject came up with because I knew 
you would want to talk about it. And I knew it was something that was near and dear to your heart. And for you, it's something old. But for me, it's something new. And, of course, if anybody doesn't realize it yet, we're talking about The Last Starfighter, mm -hmm. which came out in 1984, uh, right there in the middle of basically... You know, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg land of Star Wars and Indiana Jones and all of those films just uh, filling up our lives at that point. And so I wanted to ask you, because this is something that's been so close to you for so long, what got you into this movie? Like, what was it? What was your experience back there in 84 where this thing came on the screen and it just, I, I know it has, it's captured your heart because you're wearing the t-shirt right. right now. That's right. Uh, for all the listeners out there, this is radio, not television. I am wearing the Starfighter logo from the Starfighter League or the Star League. Uh, that's a really good question, Matthew, because I was 12 years old and it's, you know, a 12 year old memory, you know, memories of a 12 year old, are a little fuzzy, especially when it comes to how did I get into the theater? What put me in, the, in that seat? And it had to have been a preview. But you're right. From 77 to 83, we had the Star Wars original trilogy, the, the Holy Trilogy. And then we had, you know, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in 81. Um, we had uh, The Wrath of Khan in 82. Tron in 82. This was the 1980s, or at least the early 1980s. I mean, this is kind of like the bedrock of people that are my age, around my age, between their late 30s and early 40s. And The Last Starfighter, there was something that set itself apart when I saw it probably as a preview. And it was just, I think it was the video game. There was an aspect of it that had to deal with a video game and being, you know, a, a basically a burgeoning teen at the time, the video game culture was, that was kind of like the zeitgeist of being a teenager, living in arcades, trying mm, to fight yeah. for high scores, <laughs> you know, and, and just the, that whole, uh, th that whole sensation overload of just being in all the blinking lights and, and all that kind of stuff. So when you see a guy playing a video game, you instantly kind of like, uh, you recognize a certain like kindred spirit. And then you see, you know, that he was catapulted through this into something that was greater. That was something that we've all kind of been daydreamers about. Like something that he did allowed him to journey into the stars. And it could have been either set in science fiction. It could have been set in fantasy. Basically what happened was that he was set on a hero's journey. He was set on something, a path that was greater than, than anything he could ever imagine because he was from a trailer park. You know, he really didn't have a lot of options he had a little bit of ambition but you know i think it i think the whole point of this movie was that you're dealing with someone when you're watching him and in, in the main character who is very identifiable especially to you know someone we're in kind of like the same age range he was like a senior in high school he wanted to go off to college mm -hmm. you know i was yeah. just starting high school so there there are a lot of things that just pulled at the heartstrings and i know we're going to get to it more in detail but the one thing that i do remember when i left that movie I remember being really uplifted by the movie and something that just really just resonated well as my heart was soaring really when I left that movie. There was just something very magical about it. Well, and I think that's really the idea of talking about like the magic of it, you know, uh, so whenever you come back to a movie and for me, come to a movie for the first time that came out, you know, 20 years ago, 20 some odd years ago. And it's a different thing. You know, I remember being in college and seeing Goonies for the first time and 
thinking this is dumb, you know, <laughs> but you know, I'm at college, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. and you're, you're not that kid who's watching the movie. So it has the nostalgia for you. So that's working against you. And then of course, you know, um, if the movie is cheesy or not well done or anything like that, uh, that kind of stuff, it, it can also lose you sometimes. But so for me, the, it's an interesting journey to this because I knew how much you liked it. And I thought this would be really fun to talk about, a, you know, an old school film, very much rooted in, in uh, the geek pop culture zeitgeist. One that, you know, really, this is a film that still it's it's more geeks know, you know, it's it's not out there. I mean, it's not a Star Wars or something. Right. And so I, I, I got a chance to watch it this weekend uh, with my brother-in-law, and he'd never seen it either. And there was something, I feel like, that's just kind of magical about it. It was fun. It caught my attention from the beginning. There is a just high realm of cheese from the 80s to it. But there's a heart to it as well. There's something about it that's kind of ineffable that makes you enjoy watching it, even though, you know, effects don't hold up and that kind of stuff. But that doesn't matter because the storyline and the characters and even just, I'd say, the actors themselves are engaging. And that's... I think that's a hallmark of a film that can last because, you know, technology is always going to be a thing when you're, especially when you're pushing it, where that won't hold up over time. Right. Agreed. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, some aspects of Star Wars are like that. You know, the technology just doesn't necessarily hold up over time. But it's the story and the characters that keep us coming back. And I, I thought that was really special about this this film, that I could watch it and still get into it you know, and this came out in, in 1984, and I think that's impressive to me, you know, because there's been things that I've watched here for the podcast that, like, uh, remember when we covered Dune with Alice and Megan, and you know, that one doesn't hold up to me. It, it, it took a story that I, you know, thought was really interesting from the book, and in the film version, the David Lynch version there, I don't feel like holds up. This is something where I, I, you know, I don't know the storyline, but I'm just coming in and I, I feel like it still has a pull for me. And I thought that was really pretty fantastic. Well, I think the real secret behind this is, and before we start talking about the kind of like the plot and the narrative, I think the secret is, is that they really cast well. They, I think they really did. Uh, I think that Lance Guest as, as Alex Rogan was cast perfectly. Um, and we'll talk about the supporting cast members later, but you have to believe in your hero. And something about the 1980s movies, which I still love, I think that there was, there was no pretense in this movie. This movie is what it, or was what it was. I mean, Lance Guest was not, and still isn't really, and as much as I love him as an actor, he's not a household name. He's not a Harrison Ford. You know, he's not a Vin Diesel. But this movie didn't need any of that. This movie basically sold you on the premise of the possibility that you could play that video game and become a hero. I think that's what I really loved about it, and I still do, because I want to step up to that video game machine and beat the high score, and I want to have that, that signal beam you know, reach out into the cosmos and then 
send somebody to pick me up so I can join the Star League. It's kind of like being a Green Lantern. You know, Green Lantern is about who the ring chooses. It's not about being the, yes. the strongest yep. or the smartest. It was about who the ring thinks is deserving of it. That's what this game did. This game basically, you could be any race, any size, any gender. And as long as you were good enough to beat the game, you became a starfighter or at least got the chance to become a starfighter. And I think that's what's really universally appealing is that it didn't single anybody out. There was no exclusion in that test. All it was was skill and the determination to become better than the machine. And that's that's really what this movie is about. It's just about challenging your own heart. And that's I, I think that stands the test of time. That is kind of like a timeless motif. And I think you're, you're exactly right because it is a familiar story. You know, it is something that we had kind of seen before, obviously, you know, with Star Wars, uh, with the Aetherian legends and like Excalibur, there is a little bit of Tron there in there as well. And I think that's one of the things that kind of makes the storyline work because that there is a connection in your brain to that whole Joseph Campbell hero of a thousand faces type of journey because you know it is the classic hero's journey blueprint you know beat for beat but it's the actors who are bringing it alive that make it work you know just like in Star Wars with Mark Hamill bringing that to life making you feel like you were that kid I mean that's what's so great. Mark Hamill is a fantastic actor, and anybody who says he's not is is not paying attention because Mark was able to bring to life the normal, everyday, semi-whiny kid that we all were and make him into somebody who becomes the hero. But he's not that at the beginning. You know, he's just a kid. And the same thing here with Alex in this story uh, and Lance Guest, what he does, he's just a kid. Who wants to get out of the trailer park, you know, or the moisture and farm? Th exactly, <laughs> and it—that's what makes it so great, though. He's just an everyday kid, and yeah, he's pretty decent at fixing things, mm -hmm. but there's nothing otherwise remarkable about him other than his drive to not get stuck where he is. Right. I think that you know that I, who doesn't kind of relate to that, you know, as a person. And even now, I can put myself back in that position, and it still works. I have to say, and, and to be completely honest, I mean, like, I know this movie really well, and I can't help but draw certain parallels to Star Wars, especially certain scenes. I think that's just because of the, of the nature of how we all came up through Star Wars, and then movies like this just kind of developed that way. But even in the scene where Alex wanted to go to the beach with his girlfriend, with Maggie, and all of his friends... And then all of a sudden, his mom says, you know, you got to come here and fix Elvira's TV. You have chores to do. It's kind of like Uncle Owen saying, like, no, you can you can waste time with your friends when your chores are done. Oh, but I wanted to go to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. Exactly. You can, yeah, Alex, you can waste time with your friends when your chores are done. So exactly. there's this there's this tether to his his dream of having this different life. And very much uh, like he um in in his own time when he lays down in his bed and he looks at his mobile of the stars and the planets rotating around that's the same as luke kind of like looking at the twin suns and saying there's got to be something better than this but when's it going to happen i really feel like there's there's a definite connection between what was happening with luke's hero's journey and what was happening with alex rogan's hero's journey and just to sum up the plot really quick for the 
for the listeners who haven't seen it yet, and you really should. Alex Rogan is a trailer park kid who is just basically trying to do something a little bit more significant than, than where he's at. You know, he fixes all the stuff that's broken down. He helps. He's come like an assistant manager of the trailer park. And there's one thing he's really good at. He's really good at playing this video game that just is kind of like out of nowhere hanging out in the trailer park called Starfighter. Well, one thing leads to another and he beats the high score and a stranger comes in and whisks him off into a world that he could only possibly imagine existed. And that's really the, the crux of Starfighter because he has to go and fight an evil empire. I mean, that's, 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 isn't that what we want to do? You know, as we want to become the hero that fights the villain and gets the girl. That's, that this is the, the modern fantasy made manifest once again, like post Star Wars. So um, I just don't see how, I don't see how it can fail with a story structure like that. Well, and what's so great about it, think about this, you know, he isn't anybody with a lot of exceptional skill. Right. And yet, how many how many nerds are like, I just want my video game playing to mean something. And like, you know, you, we have this desire to want to do something with the things that we are actually good at. You know, we have these gifts in our lives. Everybody's gifted with something that they are good at. And we want to be able to use that somehow because innately it makes us feel like valued and important to the rest of the universe, like that we have a purpose, that we matter, because purpose and matters so much into the human condition. And and that's what I like that this movie subtly taps into without, you know, being heavy-handed about it. It's just everybody wants to have that moment, that aha moment of, oh, this is what I'm meant to do. This is where I'm meant to be. And the storyline gives you know, Alex, this opportunity, because just like Arthur with the sword and the stone, I mean, that's what this game is. This game is the sword and the stone. And this character named Centauri is the guy who comes and picks up Alex uh, after he beats the game. This was his way of testing people around Earth to see if anybody had what it took to be a starfighter. And I thought that was really, you know, that's such a fun, fascinating, great update to the Sword and the Stone. It's a video game, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it's it's so it's kind of wonderful in that way because it fits perfectly with, like you were saying, that culture of the '80s and the arcade, where that was that was the deal, you know. Well, that was Jonathan Butel's whole point in in creating this story because he was part of that that arcade culture and then he was he was at his local arcade he was coming after work and he wanted to wind down and he was playing and he kind of like saw all these kids like just really doing what they did best and he thought to himself wouldn't it be really neat if I could tell a story about one of these machines basically becoming a signal to a, an otherworldly power saying that this is the chosen one this kid is so good at what he does that he's passed the test He's pulled, he's drawn the sword out of the stone. He's been given his lightsaber. However, whatever motif you want to put on it, that's what that game stood for. And even in the dialogue, Centauri, who was played brilliantly by Robert Preston, and, and we're going to focus on that later, he even called these at one point in time the Excalibur tests. And that's not lost on anyone who understands, you know, the Arthurian legend and mythology. But that's, 
that's kind of like you're right, Matthew. It's like that's what we wanted to do. It's like we there's nothing better in an arcade, nothing better at least back in the day than having your three initials at the high score for days or weeks or months at a time. That is that was instant street cred no matter where you walked in your local hometown. Because you're walking down the street and you're like, dude, that's uh, I always spelled my uh, my last name. I used my initials L A O. So that's like, dude, that's Lao, you know, on the um, on the Donkey Kong machine. He's you know, he's held that record for weeks. And if someone else beat it, that's respect. So, but the funny thing is, is that in this movie, one of the greatest moments early on in the movie was Alex actually beating the game. His entire Trailer Park family was surrounding him and everyone was excited and the entire Starlight Star Stop bright, crowding him. Stop crowding him. And, Give and him Lewis room. Give him space. His brother. But everyone, it's so, it's like, it's like he cured cancer or he, or he, he yeah. um, <laughs> you know, he uh, exacted world peace or something, but he just beat the game and it was wonderful and it was special, but it was small. And I, I thought that mm-hmm. scene was just so beautiful because he's high-fiving everyone the older people didn't really get it, but they were excited. The younger people kind of like, well, this is kind of neat. He's been working at it for a long time. And we as the audience didn't really understand like, well, it's just a video game. You know, what's the big deal? It's like, okay, mm-hmm. so now you can put Alex Rogan on the credits and, and, and now he's there for all time. But that machine wasn't supposed to be there. That machine was supposed to have been in Las Vegas in a much bigger arcade with a much bigger pool of an audience and players. But for some reason, Destiny or however you want to label it, allowed that machine to find its way to that trailer park and for Alex Rogan to find it and beat it. And that falls also into that really romantic notion of destiny as the hero. What I like about that kind of story is that it's not just that the person happens to be good at something, but the person has done actions that make them that person for for the most part, you know? And especially here, Alex is proactive in the sense that, you know, he's been playing this game, he's been applying himself, he's been making the choice to, you know, spend his time there and doing that, and it's actually paid off into something, you know, and so it's destiny in concert with the the person making the choice to do something, and and that's what I like, it's like, in, in a way, it's destiny and personal responsibility put together. You know, because Alex is a very what I like about the character as well is he has character. He's a he's a morally responsible person, you know, and that in the end that pays off. And, you know, I we don't get a lot of those kind of messages for the most part, I think, in movies today. And so it's nice to see those kind of things be reinforced where we're using story to tell something fun. But. It's also subtly teaching good messages to children, you know, and to teens and to anyone else who who just happens to be paying attention. And so I think that's one of the things that when you're talking about the hero's journey, it's so popular because it's such a great tool for teaching and understanding the best of the human condition. You know, and I, I think that's why it's so endurable as a storytelling motif and why we tend to gravitate towards those stories. I mean, think about it. Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, um, you name it, Arthurian legends. The list can go on and on and on. And this movie fits within that mold. And I think that's what makes it 
cover up some of the the other cheesiness or you know effects and whatnot the storyline just keeps you going that the strength of the thematic element that's happening is still resonant today absolutely i think that's you're right i agree that's it's something that you don't really see in movies as much anymore i think that was probably a little bit stronger of a thematic motif especially with the the post star wars culture because the hero's journey really was a very sellable ideal and it allowed for a lot of um it allowed for a lot of repeat viewing i mean i know that this movie was considered a success financially it wasn't huge it, i mean it didn't like you know knock down any barn doors or set anything on fire but i think for what it was and for the budget that it was put in and just for the general scope of it, I think that it actually succeeded far more than I think anyone ever anticipated. And I think it's just because there is a lot of repeat playability in this movie. I mean, a lot. And I think that a lot has to do with the actors. You're right. When you, when you use effects, effects are kind of like fixed moments in time. When you're going all the way back to 1977 Star Wars before any of it got retouched, when you watch the original, it's dated because the effects are dated, but they were the best at the time. Even now, when you're watching movies now, and we'll watch movies like 20 years, you know, God willing, 20 or 30 years later, we're going to see like, wow, those effects were really dated. But it's the story that matters. And the story here is just about one young man's ability to connect with as much of his humanity as he could. He was a brother. He was a son. He was a boyfriend. He was an ally. He was a, you know, he was an asset. He was a hero. So there's a lot of his personality that you get to see. And Lance Guest, since he hasn't been in anything else that I've seen either before or since of note, he became Alex Rogan to me. And I think that's something that we don't get really a chance to see a lot of anymore because there are so many high-priced actors that become or get slotted into roles. But back then, like Mark Hamill, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, boom, done. You know, no matter what he does before or since, uh, before or, or after. So I like being able to revisit this because I like being able to see Lance Guest again as Alex Rogan, as this you know, this bright-eyed, you know, fresh-faced actor who just becomes this incredibly diverse performer in this role. That's something that's really interesting as we kind of move into talking about the cast. You Thinking of actors that nowadays where you would just, they'll always be that character. You know, I, to me, the one, uh, there are a couple that stand out, but one to me is Chris Evans with Captain America. Mm -hmm. Because nobody's ever played that character before, uh, that of note, you know, there'd been TV movies and really bad, you know, movies done of it, but no, nobody had really brought it to life. But he is Captain America, and kind of the same way Robert Downey Jr. Right. is Iron Man, right. you know, and it's part of it is because we'd never seen those on the screen, and they've been playing them for so long now, they're just so identifiable of those characters. But you're right, you know, it. Other characters, it's it's a little bit different. Um, and, you know, when you've had so many people play Batman, some of them are good and some of them aren't. Spider-Man. And, and the question, 
Yeah, Spider-Man. And the question becomes, you know, who invibes the character you know from the comics better other than necessarily that person just is that character, you know? So, yeah, that's a great question. And I think you're right. Um, if Lance Guest... If Lance Guest had not been good in this role, the movie would have tanked in the sense that it just it wouldn't have kept my interest. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something that's happening with him. He's understated. He doesn't go crazy in the film, you know. He, he he's not like method acting or anything. He just feels very natural, mm -hmm. and I think that was perfect for the role. And he does such a wonderful job of bringing Alex to life. And then, of course, Beta Alex <laughs> to life, uh, which I love the fact that the test audience loved Beta Alex so much that they put more of him in the film um, and and added more scenes to the movie because the, the, they were just the, the audience was just eating that up. But in each side of his role, it's effortless, really. You know, there it's it's really incredible. I think. What was neat about that, you had Alex Rogan playing his actual character, and then when you say the Beta Unit, the Beta Unit, for those of you who haven't seen the movie yet, the Beta Unit is a replacement so that the Starfighter can go out there and and fight the battles against the Kodan Armada, while the Beta Unit makes sure that his day to day routine is taken care of. He's an exact. DNA copy of of the host. In this case, it's Alex Rogan. But because a couple things go awry, he is so good at being this completely almost misaligned version of himself that his comedy chops are fantastic. He's almost kind of like um Beta is almost like 3PO in a way. You know, he just he brings that comedic element to the movie in robotic form. You know, where it's it's just a different dynamic, uh, but Lance Guest playing himself or Lance Guest playing, uh, I'm, I'm playing Alec, Alex or playing Beta, it was just, they're both brilliant for different reasons. No, and I completely agree. Um, he he makes the movie work, and, and that's what it, he needed to do. And I'm just, I, I was really impressed by that. And, and it's, uh, it would have been interesting to see him be in more things. Yes. Um, and I'm surprised he wasn't, you know, just somebody had seen this and like, oh, we should get that kid from, uh, the last Starfighter. So I'm sure he felt the same way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bet. Well, Robert, uh, Preston playing Centauri, you know, I know him from the music man mm -hmm. and a uh, big musical guy had a, a lot of, uh, musicals under his belt and great actor, um, just a complete ham having a great time in this role. And I, again, I think he's well cast in that he's bringing so much fun, you know, and vivaciousness to this character. And to the, it's like he's not taking himself seriously, but he has a really serious part, absolutely. you know? Yep. And it's so great. Yep. No, that's, that's absolutely perfect. I think you hit it right on the head there. When you meet Centauri for the first time, now Centauri was, he was the person, alien, however you want to label him. He created the Starfighter game. He created the test that allowed him to recruit the talent to bring back to the Star League so that they could create more Starfighters for their defense network. But Robert Preston, first and foremost in this movie, was a showman. 
of of every every aspect of the word. He was vivacious and he was bombastic and his comedic timing was impeccable. But he was also that great kind of sleazy used car salesman that doesn't take no for an answer. Yes, (laughs) exactly. He had a quip (laughs) or a way to manipulate your your answer at every turn because that's who he was. He was he was Centauri. And I don't know, there's there's something about that's so magnetic. I do make a lot of parallels between Starfighter and Star Wars because I think they're there. But the more I think, I always thought that Centauri was more Obi-Wan, but the more I think about it, I think Centauri's more Yoda. Because when you first met Yoda on Dagobah, he was this mm-hmm. impish fool. Yep. And you didn't really understand the gravity of his character. And I think that when you finally saw Centauri for what Centauri represented, that was like that Yoda moment where, oh, this guy is far bigger and far more connected into what's going on and far more influential than, than what meets the eye. But if for any other reason, aside from what we're telling you folks to watch this movie, you have to watch this movie for Robert Preston. Because as much as I love Lance Guest as Alex, he's one side of the equation in this movie, but Robert Preston's Centauri is very much the other side of the equation in this movie. The two of them together is so much magic that everyone else that comes in behind them in the ensemble cast they're just really sprinkles on the cupcake. The cupcake is already there, and it's delicious. No, you're exactly right. He's He does everything he needs to do to make the role a success and just so much fun. And I, what, I, what I like about the movie is that I, I feel like it realized what it was and it stayed that. Um, and I said that about uh, the original Independence Day. The movie knew what it was, and it didn't try to be something else. And I think The Last Starfighter knows what it is, and the actors bring that to life, and they're not doing something else. They're not trying to be, you know, this is not an uber-serious, you know, that kind of thing. And he brings just the right amount of energy and magic to the role to just bring it to life in the way that needs to be brought to life. In the same way, um, the guy who plays Grig does, you know, <laughs> that that one, he looks kind of like a Saurian from uh, the uh, motion picture. Uh-huh. Uh, it's something like, yeah, it's, it's the weirdest makeup job. I feel so bad for the guy. It had to be the most uncomfortable thing to wear. Um, but yeah, he, in the same way, he there's just kind of this robustness that comes out of all the prosthetics that he's having to wear that creates a character. And actually, I feel like he's more the Obi-Wan character in the film. I think you're right. I agree. And I love Dan O'Harely. He plays Grig, and Grig is the navigator slash everything else for Alex Rogan's pilot because whatever Grig does, all he wants Alex to worry about is being the starfighter part, being the guy who just shoots down the bad guys. He takes care of everything else. You know, he is, he is very much like Dom DeLuise to Burt Reynolds, you know, in the Cannonball Run. But he is so good in this role. And I actually haven't seen him in any other roles but these two, as Grig or as the president of OCP in RoboCop. Because I remember when I saw him in RoboCop and I heard him talk, I'm like, oh my God, that's Grig. 
And then people are like, no, that can't be, you know, he's that guy's, he's got to be dead or something like that. And it's like, no, 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 I'm serious. That's Greg. Uh, they actually made the prosthetics for Greg a little bit thinner so that he could emote more. But Greg had, he had a, an ability to ground Alex's character. He was the one who challenged Alex at every decision in that very subtle and supportive way. Like, is this really what you want to do? Perhaps there really is a starfighter in there after all. Or it's too bad that we won't be able to see that plan happen. But it would have been nice because a starfighter could have done it. He always allowed Alex to make his own choices, but he always put all of his cards out on the table. This is what's going to happen if we don't take care of Zor and his invasion of, of the galaxy. But, like as Greg goes, you know, I, didn't, I can't force you to do it. It has to be your choice. And I thought that he played it brilliantly. And again, there's just so much heart jumping out of these characters. It's really wonderful to watch. They're so earnest. Like you said, there's, there's, no, there's no deception in any of these characters. Centauri was what he was. He was the slick as oil used car salesman slash genius. Greg is, I'm your navigator slash pilot slash conscience. That's who I'm supposed to be. And this is who I am. And I think that audiences just like seeing that. They like seeing their lanes very clear so they can identify the needs of the characters and, and how those characters give their feedback to inform the story. That's one of the things I liked about it. Catherine Mary Stewart playing Maggie, uh, Alex's girlfriend, in that she, you know... Uh, She's such a wonderful, loving girlfriend to Alex. You know, she believes in him. She cares about him. She loves him. Um, she's there for him. And at the same time, you know, she's not so completely tied to him that she's just not living her own life, mm -hmm. you know, and doing her own thing. And, like, they have such, I thought, uh, a very healthy relationship to, to be portrayed on screen. And so I really liked that. And I, I just liked their chemistry together. They have great chemistry. And so you completely buy their relationship and you almost get the feeling like they have grown up in this trailer park for a long time together and they were the two that kind of fell in love early and they've been together for a very long time and nothing really is going to break them apart and it's it i really liked uh her as an actress in, in the film and i thought she you know again she's just very effortless in the role and um Together, her and Lance Guest were a great couple. I mean, just gangbusters awesome. Yeah, there are those moments on screen where you really see that like natural chemistry happen. And I think that's why I like this movie, again, so much, is because when you see the two of them, they're like two rays of sunshine. They really are. But they're not so doughy-eyed where, you know, she'll follow his every command or he'll, like, you know... Um, walk behind her and, and, and pick up every flower petal. That's not the kind of romance they had. They had a, I think they was, they start off in that trailer park, probably as friends, probably in as, you know, tomboys playing with each other and kind of like hitting each other on the arm. But then all of a sudden they, they develop something that's like, it's just unbreakable really. And the great thing about this is that the only thing that could separate them literally is a galaxy. And even throughout that span of distance and time, the one thing that remained constant was how much they loved each other because he always thought about her and she always thought about him. He wanted to be able to do what he did as a starfighter because he needed to protect Maggie and Grams and everyone at Starbright and Star Starlight Starbright. And some of the best parts in the movie are her 
and beta unit. Yeah. Because or or yeah. or the other version of Lance because they they just had such great chemistry together and then Lance as the the the, the quirky beta unit was just comedic mm-hmm. timing, you know, in perfection. But there's this one scene that I absolutely loved where it's kind of a trope in movies where you keep cutting back and forth between the hero and the love interest and the hero and the love interest. And she just finally looks up at the stars and she says, I love you, Alex Rogan. Right at the moment when he makes his choice to continue his fight as, as the only line between good and evil. And that's just like, yes. It's like in Rocky when Adrian says win, when she comes out of her coma and she tells Rocky to win. Mm-hmm. The movie takes yep. completely different pace from that moment. And I think that's just... It's very romantic. It's literally, you know, again, against uh, what was separating them was an ocean of stars. And I, I just love that. And I think when you're a 12 year old, you're just kind of like, oh, oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I thought it was great. And and it is a classic um, movie trope, but it's it's just done. And that's what I love about the film. You know, you when you're watching a movie like this, you do have to put yourself back in that time period and remember that this is is more original than it seems now because a lot of this stuff hadn't happened. Like, I mean, even Ender's Game had not come out as a book. It will come out a year later from this. Right. So a lot of this storyline that we'll see in later things happens here in the way that it happens here first. Right. You know, obviously we're borrowing from a lot of other stuff too, and that happens all the time. But there are other things that we'll see later, especially in, I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, Ready Player One and and his book Armada uh, steal very heavily from from these type of '80s films. Um, I mean, just literally lift things straight from. That's the, tr- so, that's the truth. Yeah. And and I think we just have to put ourselves in that mindset. And I think you know when you do that, man, just to, it, open your mind to being there, and it just it still really works. And uh, <laughs> Norman Snow is is Zur. God, <laughs> this guy is. Uh, He's the classic 80s bumbling villain who isn't really as bad as he seems. All he cares about is his scepter and apparently his really bad hair. Yeah. There's not a lot really to be said about. I mean, he really is the mustachio twirling villain. I mean, that's that's pretty much tried and true trope of a lot of these kind of fantasy tales with the exception of like Darth Vader, you know. Uh, yeah, no mustache there. No mustache there. No. And if it were there, it would have been burned off a long time ago. So uh, but, you know, he he served his purpose. I mean, you just basically, literally, you had to put a face of evil on screen. You had to put this, um, the head of this empire or this nefarious organization, the Kodan Armada. But he wasn't really, you know, there really isn't a lot to say about Norman Snow. Aside from that, he was fun. He played a great heavy. He did escape. So I've I've been waiting all this time for Zur's Revenge, you know, The Last Starfighter Part 2, the, the Wrath of Zur or something like that. But... He was just fun. You know, he was kind of like um, snivelly, whiny, you know, it's like, you know, uh, you'll pay for all this with your lives, you know, like bow to me because I have this really ridiculous, sharp, everything, you know, scepter. So, but for me, uh, I really think that the real heavy villains and they never really got their due were the two Kodan officers, especially Commander Krill. I mean, Lord Krill was awesome because you could tell it's, it's imagine this, imagine this uh, as if you had really amazing Klingons, you know, like Martok, you know, and uh, Gowron, and they're like heading your fleet, and then you had a really whiny... Uh, like, sh- say, Alexander? Yeah, you know, in charge. 
And then you're like, finally, he's out of the way. Now we can do like, you know, our, the real agenda. So I really liked the guys who played the Codans and there's one of my all time favorite lines. And I put this in the notes because I think it was just, it was like Klingon honor before I understood what Klingon honor was about. The Kodan, uh, in the final fight, the Kodan command ship was about to basically get obliterated by running into a moon. They had no way of stopping it. One of the, <laughs> one of the commanders looks at Lord Krill and he goes, what do we do? And this great sequence with his eyepiece just covers his eye, really for no reason aside from looking cool. He just looks at the camera and he goes, we die. Yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. I love that line. So... Um, it was awesome. Yeah, the heavies were there just to be heavies. I mean, the whole point was to fulfill the opening line of the video game that said, Greetings, Starfighter. You have been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Zor and the Kodan Armada. Now we saw Zor. Now we saw the Kodan Armada. And we understood what that meant. So that was fabulous. Yeah, it was great. Um, you've got uh, Vernon Washington kind of a, is somebody of note uh, playing Otis, uh, the uh, caretaker for the starlight Starbright. that's right mm -hmm. that's right and um you know he also runs the little convenience store uh, right outside the the trailer park that the video game is at mm -hmm. that alex plays all the time and i he he has just a wonderful presence and he reminds me of any of those kind of wise old sages that kind of push the hero in the direction, you know, just ever so subtly, mm -hmm. but without uh, that or the minstrel almost like who's kind of, you feel like is, is the one who might be telling you the story of what's happening. So I liked him a lot. Yeah. This is the line that I think this is the one that reminded me a lot of what Yoda was telling Luke, you know, it's like many times have I watched this one as he looked away to the horizon, you know, never his mind on where he was or what he was doing. That's pretty much kind of like what Oates is saying. Like, you know, things change, you know, when the important thing is that when change comes, you got to grab on it with both hands and hold on tight. It's almost as if he's saying to Alex, don't miss that opportunity that I missed. You know, make sure that when it comes, you do it for the right reasons. And you'll know, you'll understand. And that comes to fruition at the end when he actually, you know, chooses to be in the Starfighter League and chooses to come back to bring Maggie with him. I, I just love his presence. I just think that he's the glue that kind of holds the rest of the ensemble cast together. Well, one of the the things that is interesting about the movie, there are a few quick uh, Trek alums, you know, Mark Alamo, which I didn't even know he was in the film, mm -hmm. but he's the Zando Zan bounty hunter and the hitchhiker. I, I didn't even recognize him so long ago. That's awesome. Yep. Um, it's Goldacott, right? Mark, Mark Alamo. Yeah, Goldacott. Yeah. So, uh, Will Wheaton was uh, Lewis's friend in the film, but uh, he actually hit the cutting room floor, so we have we never see him. Right, right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then uh, Meg Wiley, who was the Telosian keeper in the cage, is Granny mm -hmm. in the film. So that's that's just fantastic that they found their way into this movie. And it's weird too when you look at Granny, you're like, yes, that is the mm -hmm. keeper. But the, yeah. yeah, her head's not throbbing. Yeah. It's so weird. And the keeper's voice, it wasn't her voice. It was voiced by the actor who played Malachi, uh, Ma the actor Malachi Throne, who um, was in the two-part Menagerie uh, episode. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. He played, uh, oh, gosh, Atos is going to kill me, but he played Commodore Stone. No, not Commodore Stone, Commodore Mendez. 
of uh, in that episode. So a lot of Trek stuff going on in a in a kind of like a non Trek movie. <laughs> yeah, which is great. Well, one of the things that we have talked a lot about was the idea of the effects, and you know, the last Starfighter is one of the earliest films to pretty much extensively use CGI, mm-hmm. uh, computer graphics in place of the 3D models. And, you know, they, they did build a few things, but for the most part, this was their way of cutting down costs so that they can make the movie. And it is very interesting to see this super early CGI. Yeah, I remember watching the behind the scenes and the DVD and the premise of this was, you're right, it was to reduce costs to be able to move the camera in ways that could tell a better story, to be able to create settings that have never been seen before, to create worlds and environments that they can control better than usual stop motion animation and models and such. However, when it came to the actual computing power of the Cray supercomputer at the time, the amount of footage that they had calculated for the story would have taken 17 months to render or around that. So they literally had to strip back a lot of the architectural design work of a lot of the models that were supposed to be far more intricate than actually what they were on screen. We were supposed to see a lot more detail with in the rock formations, in the Star League command headquarters, and the gun stars themselves, and just in a lot of the smaller details in general. So when you actually watch the movie, folks, and if you didn't grow up with it the way that I did, that's fine, but Please keep in mind that what you're seeing aren't even the 100% um, envisioned effects for this movie. These were the best that they could do to get the movie out on time. And I believe they had like, they had to reduce their 17 month window to like a six month window or even shorter. So what, basically this is the equivalent of what Ray Harryhausen was doing with stop motion animation in the 1950s. This was when technology really took kind of like a quantum leap ahead in terms of what studios could do. And then computer-generated animations kind of took a a different life moving forward. I'm sure when the guys at ILM saw this, you know, your Stan Winstons and your Phil Tippetts of the world, they were like, oh, hmm, you know, this this has a lot of promise. So, but what it... What it didn't do is it didn't diminish the story. No matter how the effects came out, you're still watching how it tells a very good story. And they still are decent. They're not the greatest effects in the world, but sometimes you can forgive them because they keep the the pace moving really well. And you're not really stuck anywhere uh, too long with really dated effects. No, that is the thing. I mean... You are only talking about 27 minutes of effects for the film, whereas today it's completely, I mean, just seeing Independence Day resurgence where everything is an effect. Um, You know, this is, like you said, what's great is that the effects are there to serve the story, and they effectively allow you to continue seeing the story without it taking away because everything else that we've talked about with the characters and the storyline and all, make up for it. and question I had for you, mm-hmm. because I think this would be really interesting, would you want to see a remastered movie that redid the effects with the right, with the same, I mean, uh, if you could get the director back to make sure that everything was in line with what they wanted to do, 
all they did was just go in there and basically do a TOS where they update the effects. Do you think, um, would you want to see that? Would that bother you? No, that wouldn't bother me. I think that would actually be a really neat project because you can only go so far. You know, even in TOS, I mean, a lot of the stuff they did was mostly cleanup work and some detail uh, modifications, but it's not like they changed the enterprise. They just mm -hmm. allowed the enterprise right. to be seen at different angles, a little bit more dynamic camera movements and stuff. But the camera movements in this, in this movie, they weren't bad. I mean, they were very dynamic. I just think that the Gunstar could probably just have a little bit more panel work and design the particle effects mm -hmm. yeah. with, the, oh, yeah. you know, with the explosions and stuff like that. But that doesn't change the story. That's the beauty of it. Right, exactly. You can reskin it with better technology, but as long as the pacing and the cuts and the effects don't change the narrative, then the narrative stays true. And that's, for me, that's really what I want to have intact. Everything else can be changed. That, that'd be fine. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, uh, what's great about the film and the way it is set up is, uh, and the way they shot it, as I was thinking about it, as watching the movie, I was like, you really could redo the effects in this movie and it wouldn't hurt anything else. You would just be upgrading the movie so that it was more palatable to some people today. And in, in general, I think it would it would make the movie better in the sense of it would be even more enjoyable to watch to see some of the things brought to life in the way that they want them brought to life. I mean, you know, when they do the explosion for um, the Starfighter base... It's awful. <laughs> I mean, let's not lie. But so that would just be something where it's just like when you bring to life what's actually happening in the story, that's where the effects would just be serving it better. So I, I, I would love to see that project. Man, somebody needs to take that on. Yeah, I'd actually It'd rather awesome. see that done than maybe like a, a full blown out version of Starfighter. But I think that one of the things that actually also did uh, do a lot of cost savings for the effects was they overlaid actual explosions on top of the graphics. Everything was yep, supposed to have did. been done computer generated, but they just couldn't, they couldn't harness the particle effects in time. So they had to do a lot of cost saving measures and they look like cost saving measures. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, uh, tout, uh, these are being the greatest effects of all times because they weren't, but they did still serve the story. They still do. But I think that a restoration not a recreation. A restoration would be really interesting to watch, I think, because it just gives it a little bit more polish. I think I would like to see them get to where they wanted to be because I've seen renders of like the gun stars on drawings and stuff like that, and they had a lot more going for them just in terms of their panel. Like when I say panel work, everything was, you know, Star Wars was so hot with the way that it looked. You know, you had these just, you know, the, the X-Wings and the Y-Wings and the Falcon. They just had this great used look. I think Starfighter actually did have a little bit more of that lived-in universe versus Star Trek because they're on the frontier. You know, they're battling these forces, you know, on a daily basis and, you know, year after year or so, they're, they're, their equipment's a little beat up and they're, they're not spit-shined and polished, you know, like right off the assembly line. You know, they, they, they still have some use on them. Yeah, basically just think these guys feel like they're resistance from episode seven before the resistance, you know, they're... Not necessarily the most well-funded, you know, they're they're doing the best they can to hold off this armada and, you know, uh, rations and things are thin. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think uh, just kind of think about that. No, I, I think, though, in the end, there's the effects aren't great, but they don't take away from the story. And what I think really adds to the film a lot like in Star Wars is Craig Saffin's soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And of course they were going for a very big bombastic Star Wars type soundtrack, but I love it. it, it it's such, 
I just, I really do. I liked the music in the film. It's a great theme. It's big. It's fun. It it fits perfectly. And there are some great smaller scenes too where the music is just gorgeous. And so I just, this is the kind of soundtrack that really brings the movie to life, you know, and helps accentuate the movie and brings a theme out that you want to follow. And this is what I sometimes miss about soundtracks today that just don't do that as much. And I, I got to say, it just, it, it adds so much, I think, to the movie and the enjoyment of it because you are enjoying what you're hearing on every level. Yeah, it's hard to find like main themes today in today's soundtracks because they're not, they're not as bombastically thematic you know john williams he always said that i want you to be able to identify my theme in a certain amount of notes if i haven't done that i haven't done my job so when you think about and i'm just going to play this mental game with everybody here that's listening when you think about superman you know what superman you know when you hear star wars it has the same thing you know these themes when i just say the words because john williams has packaged them in such a way where this is what you are supposed to remember the movie with. And, and um, Craig Safin's work, it's the same. You have this theme, this dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. You know, it has a very interesting, almost military-esque cadence to it because there is, um, this is a struggle. You know, this is a good versus evil kind of story. So he brings that to the table. But he also is smart enough to know that he's in 1984 and you have to bring a little bit of that pop synth type of flavor to it also. So in some of these quieter moments, you know, you hear kind of like squibs and squiggles and and these kind of uh, connective tissue moments to 1980s. I mean, that, that's just kind of like how, how it worked. But overall, though, it's, it's a soundtrack that you can always put in the background. But when you hear the main Starfighter theme, it makes you feel the same way if you're like me it makes you feel the same way that you felt when you walked out of the theater. You felt like, like you, you have won alongside Alex Rubin. You were part of that parade when he came back after he defeated the command ship in the Kodan Empire. It's just very uplifting, and that's the, the same kind of feeling that you get from most of the John Williams scores, you know. I'd say most because Schindler's List isn't that uplifting, but, <laughs> you know. Well, that's that's true. Yeah. Uh, I also think of his book, The Book Thief, uh, not really an uplifting uh, thematically as well because it also deals with uh, the Holocaust and all. But no, you're, you're exactly right. It, Williams knew how to do that, and I think uh, certain other composers, you know, like Goldsmith or James Horner, those kind of... The, the guys got it. You know, they understood that you want to be able to identify your characters in your film thematically with a theme that doesn't take you long to be able to recognize and to be able to hum later on. And so he does it, and it's great. And I think, you know, really what it leads me to in this is, um, for you, Norm, does the movie, as we've talked through it, does it still hold up for today? And then if you, if there was a rating that you could give the movie, which I know might be hard for you to do, what do you think that you would rate it? I think it absolutely still holds up for today. And I'm going to take the effects out of the equation because they don't. And that's just, that's just, that's just the math of it. You know, the effects were done in 1984, 1980, developed in 1983 for 1984. So that can't really be held accountable because you're not talking about you're not talking about it in terms of something that's even in today's standards, but 
in terms of quality storytelling, a very strong and cohesive narrative, the hero's journey, incredibly well-casted characters, well-acted, with great spirit and heart and a moral center, and it's very uplifting. I think we need more of these movies, to be honest with you. I, I would like for cinema to return to this type of storytelling. Not because, you know, I'm, I'm soft at the center and, you know, I like, um, not that I, I want, you know, the, the reality of the world to be you know, taken over by the fantasy of, of a perfect world, but sometimes you need to have movies that allow you to root for heroes and believe in good causes and things that, you know, and, and to join along the hero's journey. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's very inspiring and uplifting and it's something to actually just hold on to from time to time. It's, it's the good fight. Alex, he's not fighting the ambiguous fight. He's fighting the good fight. You know, much like Luke Skywalker, our hero in Star Wars. So I think that this movie absolutely holds up from that, from that perspective. And in terms of the ratings, I'm trying to be unbiased about it, but I'm going to share with you um, a small story here. My brother-in-law, who has never seen this movie, and he's about 10 years older than I am, I posted a couple of pictures on Facebook the other night because I saw the movie and I just wanted to share my fun with it. And he says, I'm going to watch this movie based on your recommendation. He's a hard sell when it comes to movies. And the first thing that he did was he texted me and he said, you know what? I can't believe how fun this movie is in like the first 30 minutes. And then at the end of it, he goes, I can't believe I haven't watched this movie until now. He goes, thank you for recommending it to me because I had so much fun watching it and I can't wait to show it to the kids, my niece and my nephew. Because that's the kind of movie that this is. This movie is a really nice family movie also. It can, everybody can come away with something positive from this movie. And I think for that, I'm going to have to give it five out of five communal crystals. It was really interesting watching this film because he obviously had never seen it before till this weekend. And you know, like I said earlier, you know, for a movie this old... And this cheesy from the 80s to still be able to capture my attention and be something I'd like and I would like to actually own because I'd like to watch it again. And I've got the soundtrack now. So thank you, Norm, mm -hmm. for that. Uh, and I've been listening to it and, and, and just enjoying thought, thinking about the movie. And, and, and like you said, that there's this good vibe that comes from it. And I think that's really fantastic. And, and like you, you know, I wish there were more movies like that. I think of couple years ago when Tomorrowland came out and people just eh, they didn't really get into it you know um, things like that like I feel like Hollywood still tries every once in a while to do something like this where it's it's a movie that is fun it's it's family oriented it's 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 friendly and it does give you good feelings when you come out of it and you know for some reason we just don't go for that as much anymore and it is disappointing but I like this movie. I think it's a very fun. It's it's actually I would say a great movie. And to me, I think that this is four out of five betas. Uh, this is just it is. It's it's just rip roaring, fun, amazing, awesome, off the wall, outstanding adventure. And you know, I I I think we all need more of that in our lives. And I'm so glad that I thought to myself, you know what, let's do this on, you know, 
let's do this on the 602 Club. Let me get Norman here because I know he loves it and I'd love to have him on the show and and, and talk about this. And, and so it made me watch it and I'm really glad I did. And, you know, we get to do this because we have an amazing associate producers here on the 602 Club. We've got Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. I really appreciate these guys. They've been believed in the show for the longest time and they continue to support us through Patreon, which... Trek FM is a listener-supported network, and we need your help to make sure that all the content that you hear each and every week can keep coming to you. Uh, There's just no way that we can put out 20 different shows, special feeds, without the help of listeners just like you. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see how you can be part of the team. We've got some amazing perks that can come with it. And again, it really helps us to be able to make sure that the content you hear here is as ad-free and sounds as clear and as crystal as possible to bring it to you each and every week. So thanks so much for that. Um, so yeah, check it out, patreon.com slash And while you're uh, trying to f- find ways to help the show, make sure you do visit iTunes and, and hit us up with that star rating and review because I'd love for you to be the winner of our prize of Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition, which... Both Norm and I have given our stamp of approval. On. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, hey, Norm, uh, before we get out of here, mm-hmm. um, let everybody know where they can find you online and, and what you've been up to these days. Okay, so it has been a little bit busy for me. I wish I could come to the 602 Club a little bit more regularly the way I used to, but things change, you know, and uh, I'm glad that I have the opportunity. I'm glad, Matthew, that you actually crafted this show for me to be able to talk about this because... It's literally one of my favorite movies. It will always have a place on my top shelf. And um, it, it just, uh, it's brought back so many good memories. So thank you for that. So around the network here on Trek FM, you can find me as one of the co-hosts on Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the original series. And you said, you mentioned Ken as one of your associate producers. Well, Ken Tripp, the chief, is also with me on that show, as is Jeffrey Harlan, Mr. Ataz. So Please check us out there if you like the original series, those movies and the content from all of the Kirk and Company episodes from the 1960s. And we actually just finished up the six movies from the original movie universe. And you can find those on Standard Orbit on Trek FM. And occasionally I'm here on the 602 Club, so I would like to do more of these shows in the future when time permits. But in some of my other time, I have actually been podcasting with other friends on a network called the Fandom Podcast Network, where a really good friend of mine, Kevin Reitzel, who's also been here on Trek FM as a guest uh, occasionally, he got me this really cool present, Matthew. He was at an arcade trade show. And, oh, nice. Yeah, and he actually went there. Uh, it was a couple hours drive for him, so this is a big present for me. He actually went there because Lance Guest was at that show signing. Oh, nice. So he actually got me a Last Starfighter DVD and and a picture signed. But even cooler than that, they actually had a working stand-up Starfighter game there. Oh, that's awesome. So if you want to check that out for you Starfighter fans, you can go to Rogue Synapse and check out their working Starfighter file. I have it on my laptop. I haven't been able to actually work on it yet. I've been too busy. But uh, yes, I've been on there, the Fandom Podcast Network, working on a show called Blood of Kings, which is a show that is basically dedicated to Highlander fandom. So you can find me there. 
You can also find me everywhere online. You can find me on Twitter. My star, my handle is Starfighter1701. And you can find me on Facebook. And you can find me on the Babel Conference, Trek FM's dedicated page to all of you fans out there. Well, uh, of course, you could find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Uh, I do some Instagramming. Uh, I'm a grammar, you could say. Uh, I am rushing. You can also find me on the network here with Chris Jones on The Orb, talking about Deep Space Nine. And, of course, I also do our Literary Trek show, which is our dedicated books and comics show with Dan and Bruce, where we talk about the books and comics of Star Trek. We also get a chance to interview the authors when they have an opportunity and talk about their latest work, which is a lot of fun. So make sure you check that out. And, of course, there's aggressive negotiations that I do with John Mills. It's over there on the Nerd Party Network. It's our Star Wars show. We have a great time just talking about amazing, fun, wacky, important, serious, and all the in-between topics there about Star Wars. So be sure to check that out on the nerdparty.com or, of course, on iTunes. Before we go, I have to make a huge apology. Okay. I haven't put my order yet in with Ruby. Oh, oh. <laughs> man, you really, uh, she, uh, and I can see she's glaring at me right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm so. sorry, Ruby. I, she's like, yeah, you haven't been here this long. You've already forgotten about me. Wow, those eyes. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I'll let you get your order in, and uh, we'll just say thanks so much for joining us, and y'all come back now, you hear? Oh.